And this is why Shimon ben Shatach said this Mishnah. He said, if we were to interrogate the witnesses more extensively, we would have arrived at the truth anyway. It's because we didn't, we didn't interrogate them extensively enough, and it's because we didn't watch our words, with, they used our words against us. How is this done in day-to-day life? Now, obviously, we're not judges, we're not juries, and we're not witches. How is this going to help you in your day-to-day life? There's a few things that this is going to help you with. All of the things that we learn, we try to apply it to day-to-day life. So now, where do you need to know all of these things? A few places that you need to know all these things are when you're trying to find a shiduch, trying to find a mate, conversion, work, and business, when you're rebuking your kids, or you have students. There's a handful of places this is helpful in. And there's plenty of other ones, if I can think about it. There's plenty of other ones. So I'll give you small examples of how. Now, in Shidduch, as I told you the example. If I tell you, listen, the law is A, B, C, and D. You're going to tell me, yeah, I match those things. I match. Whatever you just said, I match it. The law is that the girl has to be 12, the boy has to be 13. Yeah, yeah, they're 12 and 13. Prove me otherwise. Right? I'm going to say, yeah, I, I want to get in. I'm, if I'm a con man, if I'm a sneak, if I'm a thief, if I'm, if I'm a liar, then whatever you tell me, you're saying these are the requirements, I'm going to say, yes, I, I, I meet those requirements. You gave me a multiple choice, I picked the right answer. Now, Shimon ben Shatach is teaching us here, don't give any multiple choices. Essay only. Essay only. Okay, you'd like to convert? Okay, tell me about your situation. I like Judaism. Okay, great. How many kids do you, do you have? Have anybody else in your life that wants to convert? No, no, my boyfriend is Jewish. Oh, so you're converting for him? Now, if you would have told them a different way, you, you, you wouldn't have arrived at that. Or on the other hand, if they tell you, listen, uh, you have uh, the kid's situation. Um... The kid's requirement is uh, 12 years old. The kid said, yeah, yeah, it's 12 years old. It's 12 years old. He doesn't have a driver's license. How are you going to prove otherwise? But on the other hand, if I tell him, uh, yeah, I have kids. Oh, how old are they? What year were they born? When's their birthday? Caught the guy off, the, off guard. When was the last birthday? How, how many months ago was the birthday? What year were they born? Who was the president when they were born? Yeah, it depends. Again, it depends what you're dealing with. So when it comes to, sh- to a uh, conversion, you have an idea of, uh, you know, of what you're dealing with by the types of questions that they ask, by the types of questions that they answer. Same concept with a shiduch. With shiduch, if you, uh, if you ask the person, a, um, listen, I want you to meet so-and-so, I think it's going to be a good mate for you. Okay, great. It's nice. Thank you very much. But you got to do some background check. I want to make sure the guy's not a psychopath. I want to make sure that the woman is not a uh, serial killer. I want, to make sure, you know, I want to make sure of these things. I don't want to die. Right? I also don't want to marry, uh, a, you know, a uh, Amalek either. Right? So I got, to, I got to double check. Now, one of the things you could do, the guy says, okay, you know what? I'll call you with my rabbi on the line. I'll call you my rabbi. My rabbi is going to vouch for me. And we're going to call you together. Sounds nice. Sounds reasonable. No good. 
Why? I don't know what your rabbi. Maybe it's your boy. Maybe it's your f- former cellmate. Both of you were in a cell together. He's not a rabbi. Maybe he's not a rabbi. Maybe it's some guy you paid fifteen hundred dollars to tell you, tell you to read a script. So what do I, I want a phone number. I want to call him whenever I want. No specific time. Whenever I feel like it. Don't tell me to call between this time and that time. I want to call. I want to pick up. I want to hear a voicemail. I want to ask questions about him. I want to verify. I want to verify the person that's going to verify you. You understand? So, again, when you interrogate your witness in a natural way that we think, you can be fooled just like that. When you interrogate them extensively, you start thinking, wait a minute, Shimon was trying to tell us something here. There's a way to ask questions if you want to get the truth. So in Shiduch, you have to know how to do certain things. You have to know what kind of questions to ask. You can't ask, you have to ask more general questions than specific questions. Like, for example, instead of saying, do you like skiing? Do you like boating? Do you like going on a horseback riding? Because that's the things you like. Say, instead, say, what do you like? Let them talk. Don't give them a multiple choice. What do you like? Because sometimes people are either have no confidence in themselves... Um, or they like you so much, they just want to do whatever you want. Or both. I used to know somebody like this, where it didn't matter what you would say, she'd agree with you. Which is the worst. In the beginning, it sounds like you're like Mashiach. It's like, wow, I'm so great. Everybody, she agrees with everything I say. But after a while, it's like, it's enough already. Don't you have a different opinion? After a while, it drives you crazy. Uh, she's a good friend of mine. Just uh, she didn't have any confidence. Miskina. She 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 had a really really difficult time. I had to tell her one day. I'm like, listen, you have to. Uh, there's no way you like every single thing that everybody else likes. Some of these things contradict each other. Can't be a Zionist and a terrorist at the same time. Can't be a tzaddik and a rasha at the same time. It contradicts. Yeah. So when it comes to shiduchim, again, it's you know you have to ask open questions. And let them answer. Let them talk. Uh, when you're getting a reference, get the phone number of the reference. Find out some information about the reference too. Who is this reference? Does the reference have a reference? Again, it all depends on who's giving you this. If you're just finding it on your own, it's different. If you have a shatchan, if you have somebody that's a professional that is reliable, that did some of the background check, then it's less. But nonetheless, don't ever leave all of the responsibility in anybody's hands. doesn't matter how much you pay them or whatever it is. Always take responsibility of your life in your own hands. So, Shiduchim, that's how it has to do. With the conversion, same thing. Uh, in regards to work, in regards to business, every single day you're dealing with, a, uh, uh, with contractors, with vendors, with employees. When you're interviewing somebody for a job, I used to interview people every single day, and it was one of the tikkunim that I had. I hate interviewing people. Because... Interviewing people is pretty much, you interview them for jobs. The only thing that you're really doing is deciphering how much of their resume is actually true. Because in reality, most of it is fake. Most of your resume is complete falsehood. You do not know all of Microsoft Office. Maybe you know Microsoft Word and Excel. But everybody writes Microsoft Office. You're not fluent in six languages. You know a few words in Spanish because you took it in high school. You know maybe a little bit of Italian because it sounds the same as Spanish. You spent the summer in France, so you know a few words there. You're not fluent in all those languages. Relax. 
You know, ambitious, driven. Everybody's ambitious and driven. First day on a job, they're late. How is it? Be? How is it possible? <laughs> ambitious, driving, a go-getter. Go-getter. You just showed up to my office five times within the first hour asking me what to do. How are you a go-getter? You don't know what to do. I had one guy, I hired this guy. This was one of my must. This guy, I rem- I'll remember this guy to the day I die. I hired this guy, hired an, a um, recruiting agency. I hated recruiting agencies, by the way. No offense to you. <laughs> I hated recruiting agencies after this. But I tried. I'm like, you know what? Listen, they're professionals. Let me use the professionals. So I hired this recruiting agency. I said, listen, I need a personal executive assistant. I have a lot of stuff to do. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm running businesses. I'm buying businesses. I'm doing all these things. I need somebody that's a superhero to work for me. Aside from all of these other people that work for me, I need someone that's just for me. But this guy's got to be Superman times two. All right. So they send me all these idiots. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, this is not really working out. Finally, they send me this guy. His resume looked better than mine. <laughs> he showed up to the interview. He's dressed up. His name was uh, Davis Sejas or something like that. Seja, Sejas. He shows up to the interview, speaks like Barack Obama. <laughs> Looks sharp. He's got licenses coming out of the, his ears as far as securities licenses, which is what we needed in the business. You know, each license, you have to take a test. Each test is more difficult than the other. He's got licenses. He's got these qualities. He's got, he worked for this bank and that bank. And da, 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 da. I'm like, wow, this guy is, And I talked to him. And I'm like, wow, this guy should run for mayor. Amazing. He's telling me all the right things. I told him I was bought. You're, you're hired. Just from the resume, I was already sold. And once he started talking to me, I'm like, wow, this guy's a great speaker. Maybe I'm going to give him my job. I'm just going to go sit at the house. <laughs> so I hire him first day. And within the first five hours, I realize he's a liar. Why? I told him, listen, today we don't have that much uh, major things. So you're just starting out. So I need you to make UPS packages. UPS packages to send forms to my clients because we're changing firms. Very simple. It's not rocket science. Does not require any license. Does not require any skill set. Does not even require more of an IQ than a monkey, actually. Because all you're doing is you're taking a computer, copy address that's on the computer, put it in the UPS, paste, send, print, put it on an envelope. Voila! I do this repeatedly over and over again. I had a lot of clients, hundreds of clients. Six hours later, I go check on him. I'm like, oh, this guy finished all the clients already. He finished half of them. Where is he at? Two envelopes. <laughs> Two envelopes. No. So my cousin, what would you do all day? He goes, I'm making these envelopes. <laughs> I'm like, what else? Goes in the forms. I said, what else? Goes in the envelopes. <laughs> oh my God, it's not possible. <laughs> this is not possible. This is not possible that somebody could be this stupid. 
It's not possible. He ended up being smarter than me, though. I'll tell you at the end of the story. It's not possible somebody's this stupid. So I told him, look, I, I, you know, I was, I'm a very blunt person, as you can tell. And I was much more when I was in the business world. I'm like, look, look, let's do this. Let me show you how you do it. I start printing. Eight minutes, I finish. One envelope. I'm like, this is how you do it. Okay, maybe you can't do it in eight minutes because I've been doing this for many, many years. Fine. But six hours for two envelopes? Oh, okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. All right. The next day, nothing changed. Four envelopes the whole day. I said, ah, there's something wrong with this guy. And then every day, it's the same thing. And everything I would give him would take a century. And it just didn't work. And he didn't understand. And I would have to explain it 500 times. And all of a sudden, he started asking me questions where I said, there's no way that you have any of these licenses you say you have. Because in order to have these licenses, you have to know the answers to what you're asking me. And you find out the guy's a liar. So 29 days into it, I fired him. And the reason was 29 days, because on the 30th day, I have to pay the recruiting fee. And they wanted like, I don't know, $10,000, $15,000 for this moron. How was he smarter than you? So how was he smarter than me? That's a good question. How is he smarter than me? Watch this guy is smarter than me. How much? Not that I'm that smart, but this guy ended up being smarter than me. Whatever he did, he got himself. I fired him. I said, okay, thank you, David, very much for making 16 envelopes in the last month. <laughs> I appreciate it. We still have about 1,800 more clients. Thank you. We're going to have to part our ways. But thank you for the 16 envelopes. So David takes advantage of the flawed American system and he goes to the unemployment office. And he collects unemployment from me for two and a half years. Two and a half years I have to pay this thief that worked me for 29 days. How much? Whatever came out, I don't know, whatever it was. Sure, I think it's I, not at will, I take it. It's not at will. I went and to court and tried this and tried that. And every time I'd go, they'd make me look a criminal. Oh, yeah, I was in courts on a regular basis. I mean, this is a business. You own a business, you have to go to court, especially in the investment business. How did he get those licenses? I have no idea. Somebody, I don't know. No, I don't think he had it. I don't know. I think, I think he even lied about the licenses. Long story short, the guy ended up collecting unemployment from him for two and a half years for doing nothing, for making 16 envelopes. That's how you're smarter than me. See? Use my words against me, because I didn't listen to Shimon Ben Shatah, because I never heard about Shimon Ben Shatah. You understand what happens when you don't learn Torah? It gets dangerous. It hurt you by not knowing. So, this is work. You have to know what to ask. Don't look at the resume. Ask the guy. Tell me about yourself. Tell me who you are. What do you know? What don't you know? Ask the guy. The best question you can ask him is, what don't you know? Everything you know, you told me. You wrote in the resume. I didn't read it, but you wrote everything you know. Tell me what you don't know. Tell me what you're not good at. That's going to throw people off. Because they come to an interview, they're all prepared with their best suit they just rented. (laughs) You know? They woke up extra early. You know? And they get to work and all excited to get to work. And you tell them, and they're excited about telling you about their skills. I, my my uh, extracurricular activities is horseback riding. 
in the mountains and I play polo with my cousins and, you know, they tell you all these wonderful things. And I speak 87 languages and, uh, you know, they tell you all these things. Okay, what don't you know? What are you not good at? What's your downside? What's my risk? What's the least you're going to take as a salary? All the, every question you want to ask them, the opposite. And then you're going to see who you're really dealing with. Why? Because you're going to make them nervous. Once you make somebody nervous, that's, you're closer to the truth. You're closer to the truth. So work and business, same thing. Also when you're dealing with contractors. Instead of asking the guy, listen, yes, or look, show me all your work that you did. You know, everybody has a portfolio these days. You know, they show you on their tablet, or on their phone, or on some count, on a, um, notebook of some kind. They show you, look, I built this house, I built that house, I did this kitchen, I did that kitchen, even though you just stole it from a magazine. He tells you he did it. <laughs> I did this kitchen, I did that kitchen, I built this, the Eiffel Tower, yeah, that was me. <laughs> Everything they did. <laughs> Everything they did. So... Tell them, thank you very much. Instead, if you're really going to spend real, if you're going to spend 500 bucks, 300 bucks, 200 bucks, don't use any of the things that I'm telling you. It's a waste of time. It's not, it's not worth all this extra effort for small money. But if you're going to spend 10, 15, 100, $200,000, you spend real money. Whatever is real money to you. If it's $10,000 real money to you, then you, know, you have to obviously value your time to remodel your kitchen. It's going to cost you, I don't know, $30,000. Before you spend $30,000, don't tell the guy, listen, show me what you did. Take me. Let me call the client. Give me his number. I'll call him whenever I want. I want, I want him to send me the pictures. Because you can show me pictures you just stole from a magazine. How do I know you did it? I want to see how happy he is. Are you one of the contractors that finishes 90% of the work, but the last 10% is not finished for 18 years? Hmm. You ever notice that these houses, huge, beautiful houses... Always have like no paint in like a small part of the wall, and it's like a piece of like the granite missing. Or it's a house is fifteen million dollars. There's no like electric outlet. Or there's like missing granite or something. Why? Because these contractors they got all the money. As soon as they got all the money, they leave. And to get one guy to do this granite is going to cost almost as much as the whole job. So who wants to spend $5,000 on one guy? He's like, ah, just leave the guy there, right? It's a $15 million house. Let them not look over there. Put a table. <laughs> yeah, but there's no electric outlet. Okay, put a picture on top of it. <laughs> just don't call the contractors anymore. Do me a favor. Last time you called them, it cost me $100,000. That's, that's a thing. So if you're one of these contractors, you have a problem. The contractor has a problem, but you as a customer has to have to be smart. You have to listen to Shimon Ben Shatta. You have to know how to ask these questions, know how to evaluate these people. Same concept when you're rebuking your kids. Instead of telling, if your kid was gone for an extended amount of time and you don't know where he went, don't be one of these genius parents says, oh, were you at Shimon's house? Yeah, yeah, I was there, I was there. Were you at the movies? Don't give him options. Where were you? I was at the movies. What'd you watch? I watched, uh, I don't know, Spider-Man. How was it? It was good. Did you get any snacks? Yes. What'd you get? So I ask him all the questions. Say, tell me the whole thing again. Ask him again. 
See if he repeats the same story again. If he repeats the same story again, then it's true. If he doesn't, then you know he lied. A story that happened for the Gaon from Vilna. There was a, a case of a uh, divorce. And the reason why is that there's a, uh, the wife was being accused of cheating. In Judaism, a, uh, you know, cheating is a big deal. If a wife cheats on a husband and it's proven, it's known 100%, the husband is not even allowed to stay with her. It's not like the secular world or the non-Jewish world where they could cheat, stay, they could switch, they could promote it like they do on uh, psychiatrists do say that maybe once in a while you should have a new wife and they have even a TV show for them. In Judaism, once the wife is with another man, that's it, not allowed to be with her husband anymore. So there was a case, there was a couple of people that were accusing this wife of cheating and she was denying it. And according to the couple of witnesses, that's what they said. There's no one that was uh, rejecting it. Now, in Judaism, if a, uh, a Bedin is doing its job, it's, they have to get, it's not like a, uh, the, this is the best we can do. They have to be practically certain this is what it is. It's not like the uh, you know secular court where it's guilty until proven innocent or innocent until proven guilty where it's like by default it's one or the other. You know if you're if you're black you're guilty until proven innocent. If you're white and rich you're innocent until proven innocent again. You know so it's not that. Uh, you know it's a, in Judaism it is what it is. Doesn't matter who your father is your mother is facts are facts. So. In the secular court, unfortunately, there's certain people that take advantage of, which is awful, but this is what it is. So, this woman is being accused, and the bed dean says, we're having a hard time proving otherwise, but we're not, there's something missing here. So they go to the Gaon from Vilna. They say, what do you think? What do you think? He said, bring me the witnesses. So he speaks to the first witness. He asks him questions. Tell me the story. Here's a story. Second witness. And they're both next to each other. Tell a story. As soon as the second one finishes the story, he says, Liar! Liars! Liars! Lying witnesses! Starts screaming, lying witnesses. Like, what about? Why do you know they're lying? Because if you notice, both of them had the same exact story word for word. Because mm. okay, so what? What's what's that? What's the proof? He goes, it's impossible for two people to have the same exact viewpoint. You have your face; he has his face. You have your eyes; he has his eyes. You have your perspective; he has your perspective. Which means the only way they have the same words is if they coordinated. They spoke about it beforehand. If they coordinated, there must be a lie. So they said to him, this is very nice. But to have a source in the Torah. You can't wait. You make a new halacha, you're going to make a new law. We're not allowed to make new laws. Whatever we got at Mount Sinai is what we have. This is not in the Shulchan Aruch. This is not in the book of laws where if two witnesses say the same thing, they're lying. And the Gaul from Vilna says, yes, it is in the Gemara. 
The Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, page 29a, Rebbe says, if two witnesses were found to be saying the same thing, then they're believed. Im nimtze'u mechuvanim, is how you say, if they were found to be saying the same thing. Like, wait a minute, it says if they're just saying the same thing. Goes, no, 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 no. Rebbe added one word here. He said, if they were found to be saying the same thing, not if they were saying the same thing. He could have easily said if they were saying the same thing. If they were saying the same thing, fine. But he specifically added the word nimtseu, which means if they were found to be saying the same thing. Why? Because found means you have to look for it. Because his story is going to be a little different than his story. Say, wait a minute, he says black, he said a dark shade of gray. Okay, it's kind of similar. You have to figure out if they're saying the same story because there's no way it's the same story. If you found through looking, through investigating that their stories were similar enough, then you believe them. But that's because you're looking for it. But that means that if their stories are identical, then they're both liars. From one word, decided the life or death of a person. From one word, decided an halakha that we have already from Mount Sinai. That's the difference between the wisdom of the sages and common secular wisdom. When you write, you see a book, you go to Bars and Nobles, you go to any of these stores, you buy a book, I don't know, a Stephen King book, or any of these books, a thousand pages, 500 pages. In reality, in reality, that whole Stephen King book, that whole whatever other author book, you could write the whole story in 25 pages. But you're not going to pay 20 bucks for 25 pages. You have to make it look mechubad, you have to look at it respectable, so they make it a thousand, make it 500 pages. The sages, on the other hand, every single word is gold. There's not one extra word in the Torah. There's not one extra letter. That one word, this is a sentence that all of us, without learning it, it's like, okay, sounds the same thing. If they were found to be the same, or if they were the same, it sounds the same. But the word found makes all the difference in the world. And that's the beauty of the of the Torah, where once you start dissecting things and looking at the how the language that's being used, you see that this must be divine. Because humans don't think this way. Humans just don't think this way. In a natural way, you don't think this way. It could be Aristotle. It could be Plato. It could be whoever you want. As a matter of fact, there's a famous story about Aristotle, which is one of the forefathers of philosophy and all the people that are atheists today. Uh, unfortunately, most of them don't actually read his latest work. And one his latest work was actually a letter to his number one student, which was Alexander the Great. Alexander, he started teaching Alexander the Great as a child, and he taught him his whole life. He was like his number one student. But towards the end of Aristotle's life, he sent him a letter. And the letter is publicly available. I first found out about it through Midrash Me'am Loez. You can find it online if you'd like. Um, and he says, I wanted to write you this many years ago. I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, obviously. I wanted to write this to you many years ago, but I couldn't because I was afraid you were going to kill me. But I wanted to tell you that uh, some years ago I met a rabbi who showed me that not only is there Torah, this book Torah, divine and the truth, 
But everything that I ever taught you and all of the books that I've ever written should be burned. And anyone that studies them is going to be punished for it. And I wish I never taught you anything that I ever did. And I wish that no one ever uses any time of their life to read my books. So all of these people that like philosophy and they like Aristotle and they like naked people walking around like we're in Greece. Okay, you should read the latest work of those people. Same thing with Darwin, for example. People say, oh no, survival of the fittest, survival of the fittest. Okay, look what he said at the end of his life. He said, there's a God. Even Stephen Hawking, which is like a temporary atheist, like once in a while he's an atheist, another time he says he believes in God. It's like he changes his mind every few years. Depends what book he's selling. Depends what book he's selling. You know, he keeps changing his mind. How do you believe in God one day and you don't believe in God the next day? There was another scientist that came out recently, an Asian guy, I forget his name, supposed to be a big atheist, all of a sudden starts saying, no, God's real. The point I'm trying to make is that if you look at the complete work of some of the most famous atheists, some of the most famous personality that people like vouch for, you see that most of them eventually came to reality and realized there has to be a God. Not all of them necessarily came to Torah, but everyone knows there has to be a God. And if you know that there has to be a God, then obviously you also know that God has to have instructions. So, with the truth, to get to it, at the very least, we have to do ourselves a service and follow what Shimon ben Shatach said, which is interrogate. Not only interrogate others, but interrogate ourselves. Did we search for it enough? Did we conclude that we don't feel like being religious after we only asked five questions or five million questions? Did I decide that Shabbat is not for me just because that's the day I usually play golf or football or, uh, or it's because I really don't believe it? Is it an excuse or is it a reason? Is it like is, is, is what you, are you actually looking for an answer or are you looking for an excuse? Is what I ask people sometimes because sometimes people will you know they ask me a question and I know it's an open ended question. It's one of those questions that has a never ending answer. It's a conversation. So usually I ask them. Okay, so usually what I tell them is like, oh, ask me the next. Ask me a few questions at a time. I don't like I don't like when somebody asks me one question at a time because I know usually that's not your real question. <laughs> your first question is you're testing me. First question is let's get to know what he's talking about. Does he agree with me? Is he going to challenge me? Is he insane? Is he this? It's first question is you're testing me like I'm your student. By the time we get to like the fourth or fifth question, you get to the real question. So usually I tell people just ask me all your questions because I get to the let's get to the bottom line. From your questions, I know if you're looking for the truth or you're looking for an excuse. Some people are looking for an excuse. So you're just looking to get a guy with a beard, no hat though, justify your, your, your lifestyle. Justify your lifestyle. Justify your excuses. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Go continue violating Shabbat. Continue going against Hashem. Continuing violating every single sin of the Torah. Go, good job. Just give tzedakah one sin and you're good. You're looking for that. You're looking for an excuse. Or if you're looking for an answer... Give me all your questions, but Hashem, I'll give you answers. If I don't know them, I'll find them. Because I'm looking for the truth too. Baruch Hashem, I found it. But nonetheless, you're constantly going to find out more things. Um, we're already doing this for a while, so we'll do quickly the slash Mishnah, because it's connected to it. 
Because it ends, says a lot, a lot of the other things that we started the shiur with. Shmaya Naftalyon received the tradition from them. This is the next Mishnah, Mishnah 10. Meaning Shmaya Naftalyon were their students. Shmaya says, love work, despise positions of power, and do not become overly familiar with the government. <laughs> On a grand surface, it's the statement speaks for itself. But now, first and foremost, we have to know Shmaya and Aftalion. Now, Shmaya and Aftalion were both of them con- were both converts, both extremely righteous converts. And even though generally you're not allowed to, there's a, uh, a law that you're not able to get to uh, the Beddin, become part of the Sanhedrin, if you are a convert. Shmaya and Aftalion were so huge. They changed the law for them. They became not only part of the Sanhedrin, they became the head of it. Showing that in Judaism, conversion is not uh, viewed as you're a second-rate citizen. You're a, uh, as a matter of fact, according to, to the Torah, there is a higher obligation to love a convert than there is to love a natural-born Jew. You're obligated to love a Jew, but you're, there's two obligations to love a convert. And as a matter of fact, the convert is considered a higher, higher level soul than a natural born Jew. And the reason why is because a Jew that was born naturally didn't choose to be Jewish. Whereas a convert chose God. He didn't have to. He wasn't obligated. He wasn't obligated to convert. So, we see here that Shmaya Naftarim reached the highest possible level. And they say, love work, which means, if you have an option, collect the ka, or get a job that's beneath you. Work at sanitation department. Work at, uh, I don't know, fixing cars. Do all these different things that you feel like are beneath you. You must get a job. You must go to work. You cannot be one of these people that's just collecting tzedakah and uh, sitting at home doing nothing. If you have a skill set, you have time, you have the ability, you must use that ability. You cannot be one of these lazy people. Now, you ask yourself, okay, what about all of these people that are learning Torah all day? What about people like me that are teaching Torah? This is 100% a job. This is even a more difficult job than the job that you have. You finish your job after nine hours. I finish after about 20. A person that studies Torah studies anywhere from 12 to 16 hours a day. That is a job. He gets paid for it. There's a schedule. They have to come at a certain time. They're not allowed to be late. There's a penalty if you are late. There's certain times for breaks. There's certain times to eat. There's certain things you have to learn. There's certain requirements, certain metrics. There's an order. It's not like you're just studying in your house by yourself. So if you're treating your Torah and it's in essence a job, then of course, then it's, uh, then it's fine. If you're, if you're making your living through tzedakah and through different people contributing to your cause, it's fine. But if you're just one of these lazy people, lazy millennials that expects everything, you know, where they're entitled, you know, the fact that you tell them, listen, you got to go to work. What do you mean? I'm only 18 years old. So? You're 18 years old. What, what does that mean, you're 18? 18 years old. I already started a business. What do you mean, you're 18 years old? They don't think that they're supposed to work until at least 35. Yeah, they, they you know, kids, kids are still living. No. Apparently I was already working when I was a kid. But my generation is long gone.
This generation is different. Point is, is that you know people that have these high expectations. Dad, I need a new iPhone. I just bought you one six months ago. Yeah, but it's old, Dad. Yeah, but the new one's eight hundred dollars. Go get a job and pay for it yourself if you want. No, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna use my savings for my iPhone. I'm still under eighteen. You have to buy it for me. No, you don't. I don't have to buy. I have to buy you food. I have to buy iPhones. And this generation has a strange entitlement gene. Uh, and unless we start treating them like we were treated, like human beings, and not like, you know, I don't know, some type of weird, strange, dysfunctional animal that, there is, that is not capable of eating unless we feed it, uh, they're going to be that weird, strange animal that we're going to have to force feed forever. <laughs> so you have to tell your kids, listen, you're not always going to be a winner. Sometimes you will be a loser. Someone wins, someone loses. Not everyone gets a trophy in life, my friend. The fact that there's people protesting against Trump, that he won, not my president, whether you like him, don't like him, is irrelevant. He won, that's it. That's it, you're losers. Move on, move on. No, I don't want to accept it. What do you mean you don't want to accept it? Who are you? <laughs> Your biggest accomplishment was making a cheeseburger sandwich at McDonald's. Who are you that's not accepting you know, a guy that won the election? Like, like people think that their, their opinions matter. And that they're... No, but I saw this, this video somebody sent me. A woman goes to a liquor store. And uh, she asked the owner, Do you value your customers? How much do you value your customers? Yeah. And a guy, which is a stupid question to begin with, shows you that she's a little bit of a you know monkey level intelligence to begin with. What, how much you value? What is he going to tell you? I hate my customers. What kind, of, what kind of question is that? Like I value them. Well, don't you think you should not sell or something to Jews? Oh no, no, don't have the Israeli flag. It's like, no, I, I'm you know I, I want to have it. He happens to be a Jewish guy, or Israeli. But it's like, oh, I'm going to tell all my friends not to buy from you now. Who cares? There's seven and a half billion people in the world. What, my partner's only comes from you? Who are you, Bichlal? Okay, don't buy. Who cares about your opinion? But somebody cared enough to, to make this statement. She cared enough to make the statement. She cared enough to make herself known. Somebody cared enough to actually make a video of this. Like, oh, I'm going to put this on YouTube and everyone's going to know you are a supporter of Israel. Like, is some, there's something wrong with people today. It's the liberals. It's people, it's people, it's not even just liberals, it's people that like to hear themselves talk too much. Yeah, because when Obama won, not one Republican... Yes, yes, of course. And the Democrats, the liberals... Don't make it political, because it's much bigger than that. It's irrelevant. It's an entitled generation. It's an entitled generation. It's a generation of people that feel like their opinion actually matters. Their vote actually matters. They're, you know, and, and in reality... There's no reason for it to matter because most of these people that think their opinion matters have done nothing for their opinion to matter. Their biggest accomplishment in life was making themselves an omelet. (laughs) They got a you know employee of the month at Publix, (coughs) and they think that you know now they're a political figure. Sometimes you go to Beknesset, and on Shabbat you always have the same like six people talking politics. Yeah, the president should do this and he should do that, but the cabinet should do this and the who are you, Bichlal? 
Who cares about your opinion? You work at Costco, man. <laughs> Who cares about your opinions about what the president should do and how much you think what? You think that Obama or Osama or Trump or whoever's going to be there cares about your opinion that you talk about on Shabbat? First of all, you're making a sin. Second of all, your opinion doesn't matter. Who cares about your political opinion? You spend so much time exerting so much energy, or, you know, telling you who cares. The energy, oh, when people talk about this, is I love the most. When people talk about the salaries of sports players or celebrities. Oh, this guy, did you hear this guy signed a $100 million contract? Wait, is he paying your bills? Is he paying my bills? What do I care how much money he makes? What difference does it make to me? Why am I counting his money? Why are you counting his money? Why do you care? Let him have money, let him not have money. Who cares? Like, why is this of any value? And that's it actually a, makes you feel depressed when you see the makes you yeah when you watch people's fa- Facebook yeah. profiles you want to kill yourself. No, he makes hundred million. You don't even make. Yeah, you don't make. You don't even make one dollar. The guy's just got a job at Starbucks and for, for minimum wage. He look. He's looking at Derek Jeter. So, anyways, he says, listen, stop being one of those people. Love work. Get a job. Nothing is beneath you. Cleaning garbage is not beneath you unless you've proven otherwise. By default, nothing is beneath you. Because your daddy is so-and-so doesn't mean anything. Your dad, great, good for him. Like a lot of people come to me and say, No, listen, Rabbi, my grandfather was a big rabbi. And my great-grandfather was a big rabbi. My great-great-grandfather was related to Moses. Okay, good. All of them are in Gan Eden. You're still going to Gan home if you don't keep Shabbat. It means nothing to you. It has nothing. Maybe their merits is giving you an opportunity to meet me. Because I'm zealous, and I'm going to try to keep, get you to keep Shabbat. Not that I'm anything special, but nobody else is telling you it, so apparently I'm the guy. So, your grandfather, your mother's mother, your aunt's mother and father, who used to pray with the candles and wear the strings and did tefillah and was a Mount Sinai, all of that stuff is irrelevant. You are responsible for you. You have to keep your own mitzvot, you have to keep make your own prayers. You have to pray for yourself. And don't be one of these people who says, Listen, I went to the grave of this one and the grave of that one. And I got a blessing from that one. And that means I'm going to make panasa. And I got a blessing from that one. And that means I'm going to make get a zivug. Okay, yeah. That's all wonderful. But are you praying for yourself? Like all of those blessings are worthless. If you don't pray for yourself. All of those blessings are worthless, including your own blessings, if you don't keep the basic covenants of Judaism. If you're wasting seed, you're not going to get much panasah. If you're yelling at your wife on a regular basis, your panasah is not going to come in a very nice way. You may get panasah, but it'll be to an accident, chas v'shalom. If you're praying for panasah all day, and you don't use any of that panasat to give it tzedakah, you're not really giving Hashem a reason to give it to you. And even if you're getting it, it's not the most that you could possibly get. Because Hashem wants you to be a partner with you. And he's going to look at you and say, alright, so I gave this guy $100,000, and he gave $10 tzedakah. Good job, son. <laughs> Good job. And the $10 still hurts him. <sighs> it was 10 CDs, God. It was 10 CDs. You know, they try to justify. They're all, everybody's a lawyer for themselves. Everybody justifies their own actions. 
It's $10. God, it was tough. I had tight. My rent's $4,000 a month. Who told you to live in a $4,000 a month rent? Who told you to get a BMW? You just, you, you know, who told you to buy all that stuff? What, so you could show off to your friends? You have a nice car. You pay $1,500 a month for not keeping anything? Who told you to do all that stuff? What, so your friends can say, oh, wow, he's so cool. He spends $1,500 a month on the car? He doesn't even understand what the engine says? Like me, I don't understand anything. I paid a hundred thousand dollars for a car. I have no idea what it does. All I know, it's fast and cool looking. That's all that matters. Yeah, but I was making five million dollars. So it's, it's all relative. But my employees that were making two hundred had more expensive cars than me. I'm like, what's wrong with you people? I'm writing your checks. I know how much money you're making. You can't afford this. Police. <laughs> you can't afford this, my friend. I just wrote your check. You didn't make the money for the bill. It's a lease. So, love work. Stop looking for excuses. Nothing is beneath you. My first job was delivering newspapers. Then I started working at clothing stores. I started working at flea markets. Flea markets. You want the modern day slave labor in America? Work in a flea market. It's very difficult. You have to work in the snow, in the heat, in everything. It's very, very difficult work. But, Baruch Hashem, it's, it's work nonetheless. Ten years old, I already started working. Uh, in high school, aside from being a student, going to school, being, uh, doing all those things, I had three different jobs. Worked in a shoe store, in a uh, clothing store, and I had two newspaper routes, which I ended up getting an employee for, that he would actually deliver the newspapers so I could just collect the money. And I was in a, and I was in a football field, and I was also an advanced placement in school. But again, like I said, this is not to compliment myself. This is, if I can do it, you can. There's nothing that I can do that you can't. Except that I'm special, I'm nothing. Point is that if I can do it, your children can do it also. But if you teach your children to be losers, and you tell them, listen, you can be 21st place, son, but you'll still get a trophy, your son will be a loser. And he eventually will be my mailman. <laughs> not because... It's a, he wants to be a mailman, and not because being a mailman is a, is a bad job, but because by the time he grows up to 20 years old, computers are going to be mailman, and they're only going to give the mailman job to like people that have like mental deficiencies because they think they need to get a trophy for being 21st place. So you need to understand, you have to experience obstacles in order to build yourself. So first, first things first, Shmaya says, love work. Second, despise positions of power. It actually says, Usnait Rabbanut. Hate the Rabbanut. Not hate the rabbis, but hate the respect. Hate the respect that you get when you're in a position of power. Don't search for jobs that give you, don't search for being the CEO because you want to be the uh, CEO. Oh, yeah, you're the CEO. Like everybody that, you know, starts a little rinky dink company, first thing they do, they get a business card from Vistaprint for a hundred bucks and they put their name CEO like they just found at Starbucks. Like Pepsi and them are competing. Buddy, you just made three drinks in your kitchen. Relax. It's okay. You don't have to tell everybody you're a CEO. You don't have to have all this gava. I understand. Sometimes it helps. In my former business, it helped because people, it was in the money business. So it's Gavatanic. It's like the Gava. It's Titanic of Gava. You know, so it's like you compete with your clients. Who has more pride? Because the money business, what are you in it for? You make rich people richer. 
But if you're a plumber, nobody cares if you're a CEO. Only you care. Only you're trying to show off to your friends. So, again, it's not necessarily that you shouldn't say you're CEO, not necessarily that you shouldn't say you're executive director or VP or whatever it is that you is. If it helps your job, do what you got to do. But don't start believing your own nonsense. And also, don't do it just, don't get a job just because of the position. If you want to pick a career, you have to make sure that it follows these three things. Number one, what are your priorities in life? You want to pick a career? First question is, what is your priority in life? Not what the job is. First question before you pick a job, what are your priorities in life? If your priorities are Judaism, if your priorities are to observe the Sabbath, your priorities are to be close to Hashem, that means you cannot be in certain professions. There are certain professions that you're obligated to work on Shabbat. Okay, so you've just eliminated a bunch of professions. It doesn't matter if you like that profession or you're passionate about that profession. That's no longer relevant once it doesn't fit question number one. You've just eliminated a bunch of choices. For example, Rabbi Zilber, Zechat Tzadik Livacha, was giant of giants. Kiruv personality made people do tshuva in jail. In jail in Russia, he made people do tshuva. Kept all of the mitzvot that we struggle with in jail. Equivalent to Siberia. Put his life on the line just to get any mitzvah. Whether it was to get a candles for Hanukkah, you're not even obligated to, or to get matzah in jail. That's how much he loved Hashem. Phenomenal book everyone should read, as I told you guys several times, is the book called To Remain a Jew. It's a bestseller in Russian, English, Hebrew, and probably several other languages. Amazing book. Anyway, Rabbi Zilber was a rocket scientist. He was a genius. Not a rocket, like he was literally a rocket scientist. He was a genius. Like uh, something, like his, his mind was, wrong, was born in the wrong generation. He should have been born in the days of the Rambam or Rabbi Akiva. He was something special. But he settled, as we call it in today's language, to be a math teacher. A simple math teacher. Why? Because the only way that he can keep Shabbat. Because he could be a billionaire. He could start companies. He could run the Communist Party if he wanted to. But I can't keep Shabbat if I do it. Your priorities is first question. Second question. What's your pa- After you have your priorities, you've eliminated a bunch of choices. Second question, what's your passion? What do you like? If you like people, don't get an office job. Because in an office, most likely you're going to be in front of a computer all day. If you're like me, where it's okay, you could be in a cave for 15 years and you wouldn't even acknowledge it, then it's fine to be in an office, it's fine to be outside. Depends. You know, my brother, my younger brother needs people. He needs to be next to people. So he needs action. Me, you could put me in a cave 15 years, I wouldn't even know I'm in a cave. It's different. It's different people have different requirements. You need to know, what are you connected to? What are you passionate about? If you're passionate about cars, then look for something that's relevant to cars. If you're passionate about technology, then look for something relevant to technology. But if you hate technology, don't get into the business. It's simple. It's, 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 not, it's not rocket science. 
But first, again, it's only after the first question is, what's your priority in life? Because even if your priority in life, even if your passion is computers, but your priority in life is Torah, and the only computer job you can get would violate the Torah, like for example, being a hacker, then obviously you can't do the job. You can't be part of Anonymous. If you're observing Torah and Mitzvot. So, passion is question number two. Question number three, what's your skill set? What are you good at? Are you good at anything? Do you have any skills? Is your opinion valued? Is your opinion valuable or are you just one of these people that goes to the protest because you don't have a job? They're getting paid 15 an hour for the protest. Tadikim. So, because Ivan Craig go protest, you get 15 an hour. Yeah, George Soros probably funds it. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway... So, point is, is third question is, what's your skill set? Okay, you have your priorities set, you've eliminated half the choices. You have a passion, great. But if your passion is, you know, your priorities are great, your passion is great, but you have no skill whatsoever, meaning you're passionate, just for example. When I was a young kid, I used to play high school football. And I swore that I was going to be in the NFL. <laughs> I, I, I knew I was going to be in the NFL. And then I realized that I was short, slow, and Jewish. <laughs> and it wasn't going to happen. But I was really passionate about it. But it means nothing. You're not going to be an NFL kid. You're a little guy. And you're cute. But you're like my shoe. It's, it's, that's, that's what an NFL player would tell me. And I actually ended up having some clients that were in the NFL. And I would look at them and like, whoa. You're really much bigger than I am. They're huge. They're like... Little Greek gods, giants. It's like, wow, these people are like amazing. It's different genes. And they're so fast. And they jump so high. And I'm like, wow, that's why I guess I didn't make it to the NFL. <laughs> I knew I was going to. So that's the thing. You have to ask you, you have to be realistic. Okay, you have your priorities straight. Great. You have your passion. You pick something. Yeah, but if you have no skill set whatsoever in your passion, choose something else. Choose something else. And definitely don't choose anything because of the kavod you're going to get. Don't become a lawyer because Ima and Abba want you to be a lawyer. Don't become a doctor because Saba and Safta and the rest of the community want you to become a doctor. Be what you want to be. And definitely don't be one of these guys where it shows up to Abba and Ima at 27 years old. Abba, I want to dance. <laughs> don't be one of those people either. <laughs> Okay? Be normal. You have a passion. You have a skill set. As other Sam, we'll get the, the right thing. But don't pick your job based on what people think. What people think, what they view. And last but not least, he says, do not become overly familiar with government. Why? He says, because when you become too close with government... You have to understand, they're only close to, you're close to them because you want something. They're close to you because they want something. No one is friends naturally with government. No one says, hey, by the way, I'm going for a weekend. With who? Oh, with Obama. Oh, yeah, you guys are friends from high school? No, I'm trying to bribe him. You're not going to play golf because you like the guy. Nobody donates to the Clinton Foundation because they care about some homeless kid that's on their website. If they even save some homeless kid at all, the cloud. 
Nobody cares about the foundation. They're giving them money because they're bribing them, because they want them to, I don't know, release some atomic bombs to Iran or something. That's reality. People are friends with politicians for a reason. If you're going to be friends with the politicians, know that there's, it's a two-way, two-way street, meaning you're going to want to get what you want. But as soon as you get what you want, that's great for you. Congratulations. The problem is that what you want may put Torah on the line because you're going to sacrifice your principles, your foundations, your laws, and everything because you're thinking about, yeah, but after I get all this money from them, from this illegal contract, then I'll give tzedakah. But Torah says you can't make a mitzvah by making a sin first. So first and foremost, know that these types of dealings, these underhanded dealings, these underhanded relationships with politicians, throw them in the garbage. Not allowed to do it. Second, also know it's two-way street, meaning as soon as you're useless to them, as soon as they don't need you for anything anymore, they're going to make you disappear. You understand? And that can mean multiple things. The multiple things. It can make you disappear, meaning that you're all of a sudden, your success in business is no longer success because you're not getting contracts from the government anymore. So all of a sudden, you got used to this fancy lifestyle because the government's paying you $80,000 for a screwdriver. But now you're not getting any contracts anymore because somebody else is bribing them. So all of a sudden, your whole life goes upside down. You have to declare bankruptcy. So know that the relationship is going to end. It's going to end at some point. Don't get too close. Don't get too comfortable. It's not healthy. It's not legal. And it's definitely not kosher. Any questions? At least I made you guys some laughs today. So, Baruch Hashem. Yes, go ahead. Uh, what if a woman wants to dance? I mean, not a woman. What do you do with that talent if somebody can dance fashion? What, is that even a talent? Uh, okay, so this is a good question. In regards to raising kids, there was a question asked in one of the groups that we have in WhatsApp uh, about what to do with kids in general, which also answers your question. So, first and foremost... Entertainment for kids must be monitored uh, and one hand as far as modesty, another hand in regards to where it could lead to. So, for example, going to a park like Disneyland, uh, you know, not like a uh, water park because there's just practical nudity there. So, you know, more and more like uh, Disneyland or Universal Studios, one of these parks is 100% allowed. It's fine. Um... It's fine to take the kids there because, first and foremost, people are dressing there the same way they dress everywhere else. So, uh, second of all, you can't raise your kids to such an extent that uh, you tell them everything is not allowed and yet expect them to like Judaism. They're going to end up hating you and hating Judaism. So, unless there is a kosher place to replace it, Allah allows you to do it. Meaning, if there's two choices, there's one kosher, I don't know, uh, action park, and two, non-kosher action park. That means you have to go to the kosher one, even if you don't like it as much. There's an option, you have to go to it. But if there's no other option, there's no kosher Disneyland, there's no kosher Great Adventure or whatever other park you want to go to, that's the only option, then you take your kids to that one. You know, you can't seclude them, put them in a little cave and expect them to play with the chicken head like they did 2,000 years ago. 
You know, it's just not realistic. So you have to give the kids some fun. But again, it has to be a reward system. They do their homework, they learn their Gemara, they learn their Chumash, you know, they get good grades, you take them to a park. But if every week you have to take them to Disneyland, then your kid's going to end up becoming a troll. Hmm. Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be never-ending expectations. So you're allowed to take them. But on the other hand, another question was, am I allowed to take them to a movie? Movie theater. It's better to watch the movie at home than to take them to a movie theater. And the reason why is because even though you may check the movie, first of all, you have to check the movie before you let the kids watch it. For modesty reasons. Uh, you know, because in today's world, unfortunately, practically every movie is not modest. Even the cartoons are not modest. So you have to be really, really, really selective with what your kids watch. Um, yeah, we're almost finished, a few minutes. Um, you have to be careful with what your kids watch because you don't want your kids thinking that it's okay to wear latex. You know, and that's what the superheroes wear. Or you don't want your kids to think that it's okay for boys and girls to kiss at 12 years old because it's not okay. Uh, so you have to make sure that you monitor what they watch and watch it before they do. Uh, but second thing, that's also the reason why you shouldn't take them to a movie theater and you rather actually watch something at home because number one, you'll have the opportunity to watch it before they do. Uh, and number two, if the kids get used to going to the movie theater, then I say, listen, it was good for me to go to, the, it's okay for me to go to the movie theater for Spider-Man. It was okay for me to go to the movie theater for Ninja Turtles. Then it's okay for me to go to the movie theater for Freddy Krueger. And for, I don't know, some other nudity film. Because it's the movie theater. So I'm going to the movies, Ima. If one thing's okay, the other one's okay. So once your kids know that, yes, you're allowed to watch only certain type of movies... Then they already see that there's a structure in their life. But to just say everything is not allowed, what ends up happening is that eventually the kids blow up and they become atheists. You end up creating such hate, because everything is not allowed, that one day they go out to the world, because they're not going to stay home forever. You know, 20, 21, 25 years old, one day they get out of the world, or in this generation, maybe, you know, 47, they leave the house. And, uh... And eventually they see the world, like, oh, wow, there's internet. Oh, wow, there's, you know, different gender. Oh, wow, there's kosher and non-kosher. Like, they see the world. So if you didn't train them to deal with this other part of the world at home, they're going to lose their mind. So you can't constrict them too much. Uh, so that's that. As far as career choices, one of the obligations, according to the Gemara, one of the obligations of a father is to teach their children something Easy and something clean. This is a um, Rabbi Meir says this. Uh, it actually happens to be one of the commentaries of this Mishnah. Rabbi Meir says this: You have to teach your children an easy and a clean profession. Easy, so he doesn't occupy too much of his uh, mental capacity, so he can use all of it towards learning Torah, and also it's easy where he doesn't have to work overtime. If it's one of those jobs where he has to work day shifts and night shifts, and he only has like a half hour to actual breathe every day, it's not a good job. Regular job, nine to five job, whatever it is, normal single single job, because your priority should be Hashem, not making millions. If Hashem wants you to make millions, you can make millions in any profession. There are millionaires in every profession. Don't think that you have to be a lawyer, doctor, stockbroker, or whatever, uh, you know, to be a uh, CEO... To be a millionaire. If Hashem wants you to be a millionaire, He can make you a millionaire anything in way. If He doesn't want you to be a millionaire, it doesn't matter what you do. There are people that, you know, that deal with garbage. 
that make minimum wage, and there's ones that make billions, literally billions of dollars. There are people that deal with dog food that make minimum wage, and there's ones like my former clients that own multiple buildings and have a net worth of $200 million and live in Kansas. So you can make money in anything. If Hashem wants you to make money, you'll have money. So first thing is, have an easy profession where it doesn't occupy your life too much. Second, clean profession so it doesn't get you to a point of dishonesty. Like don't be a politician. Don't be a criminal lawyer. Don't be put, put yourself in a situation where you have to lie for a living. As a criminal lawyer, you have to lie. As a politician, you have to lie. In certain professions, you have to lie. In certain professions, you have to violate the Torah. You know, I have a couple of students, Baruch Hashem, that are pretty much changing the statistics of uh, you know people that are salesmen in the car business. But in general, the car business, you want to be, you want to sell cars, you must work on Shabbat. It's the number one day of the week is is, is Shabbat. But these two guys, both students, Baruch Hashem, both keep Shabbat and put their uh, the company on, um, uh, gave them an ultimatum, told them, listen, I'm not going to work on Shabbat, but I'll make up for it the rest of the week, and the companies let them do it. Which was, you know, a milestone for, uh, for the companies, but obviously it's all in Hashem's hands. So, in regards to profession, if the father, if the mother, give the kid the right education, the kid's never going to want to dance. He's never going to want to be in a ballet. You know, and as far as being in a ballet, the problem is not necessarily that he's dancing. A woman is not allowed to dance publicly at all. A male is not uh, because it's a scene of immodesty. He himself is not as bad as a woman that's uh, that's wearing this. I mean, it's still bad. It's still not modest for a man to wear this spandex that they wear, but it's not as bad as a woman. What's bad is is the scene around him. He's not alone. There's women that are practically half naked. There is, you know, the, the whole scene is no good. And also, in general, the, those types of jobs with show business and uh, modeling, movie starring, uh, all that stuff, is if you want to ruin somebody's life, then get into that business. Because, in general, there's not too many good stories that come out of that business. You see a lot of people kill themselves... A lot of people overdose, a lot of people are drug addicts, a lot of people get divorced. You know, the role models most people have are the biggest degenerates in the world. You know, you ask people, you know, name uh, the, uh, the capital of the United States, they don't know. You show them a picture of some woman, oh yeah, it's Kim Kardashian. You ask them who the president of the United States is, they barely know, but who, uh, you know, uh, 50 Cent is, they know. You know, people are ignorant, and, and it's and so. It's uh, but who would they look up to? If they looked up to Kim Kardashian because she was a role model and she was a tzaddika, she was something that you would look up to her for. Then yeah, fine. But the woman is practical prostitute that gets paid a lot of money. What's the, what's what's to like here? If she was not a celebrity, everyone would be, in, would be insulting her. Same thing with all the other celebrities. Listen, they're wonderful movie stars and they're, you know, they're good acting skills. But when someone gets divorced five times and they're only 40 years old, you see yourself, there's a problem. Yes, they're a good actor, but not necessarily a good human being. 
You know, and the fact that they donate so much money to some cause doesn't mean anything. It just relaxes their conscience. So the overall profession that you want your kids to be in is something that's going to be kosher. And in essence, you're going to have the biggest influence on your child of what they're going to be. Yes, kids are going to have a skill sometimes that's contrary to what you want them to do. But Baruch Hashem, it's not going to be their only skill. Hashem is going to give them multiple skills. Okay, so maybe they're going to be really good dancers and they like break dancing. Maybe they're, okay, maybe they're, but Hashem also gave them a brain that figures out math problems. He gave them a mouth. They could speak fast. He gave them a, eyes. They could see sharper than the eye. You know, he gave them a bunch of other skills. No one's given one skill. You know, so you could do multiple things. Someone has a, you know, predisposition to see blood in life. The Zohar says this. The holy book of uh, Zohar says that someone has a predisposition to see blood. They need blood in their life. They have an attraction, a desire for blood. But they also have three choices. At least three choices. One, to become a murderer. Not usually a good choice. Two, you become a butcher. Decent choice. You can make some decent money and have a respectable living. Three, you can become a surgeon. All three will fulfill this desire of blood. But on one end you're a murderer, on the other end you're saving lives. You know, so it all depends on what kind of education the person gets. What else? I know as soon as I turn off the camera, everybody's going to ask 500 questions. So I'm going I'm to let you guys... Yeah. That's how it works every week. So let me ask you this. Yeah. I, I mean, what was really... And, and I did. I, I watched your video. Um, the personal story you watched? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it, but it not. It didn't really break it down. Maybe maybe where they talked about yeah. two different videos. It was like a two and a half hour video. They're all two and a half hours, but yeah. Um, at least you're consistent. Yeah. Well, um, sometimes three and a half. <laughs> I guess my, my question is really, what was the ultimate catalyst, if there is one? For me? Yeah. That pushed you into this direction. Um. Well, I mean, my life turned into hell. And uh, I went from having all the money in the world, respect, honor, and thinking that I was in control of my own destiny. When people would ask me, you know, why don't you retire? Because I had plenty of money. I told them, no, I'm going to be one of those guys that's 80 years old and still in the office. I believed that I was going to work. I liked what I do. I liked making money. I liked the profession itself. I enjoyed it. It was a mental challenge for me. As a hobby, I would play poker. I was able to do whatever I want. Everything was going fine. Um, and then Hashem turned it all upside down and showed me that it's all fake. Because the only way that you could find out the truth of, of how strong you really are is when you put under pressure. You know, if you put on just two rocks and both of them look like a diamond... Both of them look beautiful, five-carat, D-flawless diamond. But I tell you, one of them is worth, five-carat, D-flawless diamond is worth half a million dollars. And the other one is worth six bucks. What do you mean? How could it be? It's two diamonds, same color, same size. One's a half a million, one's six dollars. Why? Because one is a real diamond, and the other one is cubic zirconium. 
What is fake? It's not a real diamond. It looks probably better than the real diamond even. It's like all these young kids having their earrings make you think that they're all football players. The guy has, you know, doesn't even have his own car, but he has a five-carat diamond in his ear. But it's fake. So, how do you know? How do you know? How can you tell? A common person can't tell. If Nissan goes and looks at these two diamonds, you can't tell. If I look at two diamonds, I can't tell. How do you tell? Put pressure onto them. You put pressure on a diamond, nothing happens. You put pressure onto the cubic zirconium, it breaks. It becomes nothing. It becomes powder. Only way you can know your true self, only way you can know who you really are, only, know, only way you can know the strength of your relationship, only way you can know the strength of your connection, only way you can know who, who's really you is when there's pressure. So when I had pressure under my life, it all collapsed. It was all dominoes. The money became worthless. Not that I ever liked money. I had money. I never necessarily liked it. I gave more of it away than I used um, but nonetheless, it's a, uh, you see that money had even less of a value than I thought. And as far as friends, bubkis, worthless. Uh, the strength I thought I had in my youth disappeared one second. You know, you think you're 26, you're, you know, what should be wrong in life and 26 years old? Well... 26 years old, all of a sudden I have the surgery, and all of a sudden I become sick, and I have to fight for my life for the next seven years. So, you go from one day, everything is great. I just made a million and a half dollars a couple of months before that, maybe five or so million dollars for the year. I had employees coming out of my ears. Seven to 26, you were doing? 26. Wow. Uh, I had employees coming out of my ears, including that David Shehaz guy. An idiot, uh, and uh, I had, I had, yeah. I mean, anything that you guys would want, anything that anybody else would want, I could buy whatever I want, do whatever I want, all of that stuff. Everyone was my friend, of course. People asked me if they could do business with me. They would call me, said, "Listen, do you have any room to do more business?" Which is demented. What do you? Of course, yeah. I mean, it's, but that's 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 what it got to. Everything was great as far as the illusion. And then when, as soon as there was some pressure, everything collapsed. The friends were no longer friends. Shortly but, you know, slowly but surely became enemies. The money became immediately worthless because money can't fix your health. You know, everything, everything, you could, everything that was of any value became worthless. So as soon as I realized that, that initially made me not want to live. I actually started begging whoever was next to me and would listen to kill me. Um, but nobody listened. Uh, Hashem. So uh, eventually, you know, I started coming back to my own. I thought that I had a second chance at life. Um, I started getting, I guess, less pain, a little more, you know, and uh, still a lot of pain, but less than the original surgery. Little by little, I, I you know, I uh, tried rebuilding myself, but everything I would do would fail again and again, and then the health deteriorates again and deteriorated even worse. And this continued, it was like a never ending battle where I would take, 
you know, two steps forward, six steps back. Two steps forward, six steps back. I'd make a million, lose three. I'd uh, make a relationship, lose four relationships. You know, it's just, it was just constant problems. And it, every time I thought that I was getting ahead, I would, you know, it was constant issues. And um, the doctors eventually got to a point where I started hating them because they were, ma- they were making me worse than what I was, or at least that's what it seemed like. Um, it even got to a point where certain doctors didn't even want to treat me anymore. They said, listen, we're scared of you. We don't want to deal with you. We're, we're going to ruin your body even worse. They were like, they didn't want to touch me at all. Like, you're bad enough. We're scared of making it worse. Um, and uh, at that point, I mean, at one point, I gave up. I wanted to die. Um, and uh, the turning point as far as, like, uh, I guess the first turning point was the phone call with my cousin. The phone call with my cousin, that, if you remember from the, from the lecture, uh one day, uh, my mom called the wrong phone number and uh, looking for a blessing from some rabbi for me because I was in bad situations. So she was calling different rabbis. And, uh, she recognized the voice, no? She, yeah, she called the wrong phone number in Israel. And uh, when you know, she asked for a certain rabbi, and the woman said, no, I'm sorry, it's the wrong phone number. And my mom started hysterical crying to the strange lady uh, in Israel. And the lady recognized her voice out of the millions of people that live in Israel, and uh, said, Dolis, which is my mom's name, he said, yes, how do you know my name? Who are you? She got, she was shocked. And she said, uh, well, I know you because you're my aunt. I'm your niece. So she, wrong, she dialed the wrong phone number, uh, which wasn't a wrong phone number. Now, what we find out later on is that not only was it not the wrong phone number in a sense that she knew her, but... The woman, Pnina, was the only person that could help. And she was Rabbi Ephraim's sister, who was the one that helped me do tshuva and so on. So that's actually in the shiwa. I'll send you the lecture. Maybe you watch yeah, a different that, one. Yeah, I watched a different one. So watch, watch a different one. It's an uh, interesting story. So that was my, my first wake-up call. Where number one, I realized that uh, there's a God. This couldn't be a coincidence. This, uh, this, this, there has to be something. Uh, but two, that that God actually cared about me. Like it wasn't just okay. A God created the world, great, but He left. Like not only was a God, but He actually cares about me. Um, and it gave me hope. It gave me hope that there could be something better. There could be hope. There could be something. Um, and little by little, it started, things started to change, where even though my financial situation, my health situation initially deteriorated steadily for the next two years, spiritually and mentally, I was improving. So, if I continue to just look at things on a physical, physically and materially, things got worse, much worse. My health got much worse, I had more surgeries, I uh, lost a fortune, I, uh, everything sucked. But I didn't care anymore. I had God. Instead, so I had a purpose. I had a purpose in life. And then I started realizing that all of these things actually have a purpose. Even though it hurts, it's fulfilling a purpose. So that was the first turning point. And there were several other things. And, you know, there was many, many miracles, Baruch Hashem, that have happened and continue to happen on a daily basis. Um, 
that uh, connect me to Hashem on a regular basis. But again, it's a um, it's not luck. It's putting yourself in a scenario where you let Hashem run the world. Hashem's running the world anyway. Mm-hmm. But if you're constantly getting in the way and tell no, no, Hashem, you don't know what you're doing over here. Let me do something different. No, this bracha, no, it's not good for me. I'm going to try something else. You're constantly telling Hashem what to do. Then you're creating a, you're creating a new God, meaning you. So it's not going to help you in life. So that's the thing. I had to let go. I had to let go of everything that I knew. Everything that I was pre, you know, predisposed to think. That I knew everything, that I was everything, that, you know, and so on. I mean, it's a, uh, um, it's not difficult to have a lot of pride when you have a lot of material and on top of, you know, a brain that you already think is special. But once you realize that you're nothing, you finally have an opportunity to become something. You know, but as long as you think you're something, you have no connection. You can't have a connection to God. It's impossible. What else? <laughs> hmm? I'm tired of my own voice, but... No, Baruch Hashem, you're asking good questions with other Hashem. So this one's, uh, I guess, more about me. Go ahead. It's something I'd rather do in a personal setting. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. no. If everybody can, can learn from it, by all means, I'm sure. happy to share. So I, I, you know, again, sort of going back to what I said before, kind of rebelling a lot, right? Uh, growing up, I was told to do things a very specific way, and the rest of my adolescence, I pushed completely against that. Right. So I ended up getting tattoos. Mm-hmm. I have three tattoos. Okay. And three very big mistakes in my life, three representations of a time in my life. Okay. And I know this is a very big sin. I know this is something that I should have done, and I wonder now... What do you, you know, do? Right. Okay. It's a sin to get a tattoo. It's not a sin to have a tattoo. So it's a sin to get a tattoo. You've already made the sin. You have to repent. Obviously, part of repentance is being sorry for it, which it seems like you already are. Uh, another part is to, you know, promise that you're not going to do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and three is to do whatever you can to uh, encourage others also not to do it. But nonetheless, as far as removing it, uh, you're not obligated to remove it unless it can cause Chilul Hashem. Unless it can cause a desecration of Hashem's name. Meaning... If it's a tattoo of, I don't know, a, uh, a dog or something like that, or a, uh, I don't know, some football team helmet or something like that, uh, then it's on, your, it's on a place in your body that no one else sees unless you're naked, then it's, you know, it's a, you don't, you're not obligated to remove it. But if it's a tattoo on your neck that everyone is going to see, then you have to remove it. Or if it's a tattoo of idol worship, if you have a cross, or you have J.C. Penney, or you have Buddha... Or you have any of those things that are, you know, forms of idol worship, then you have to remove it. So if it's just something neutral, and it's in a place that no one else is going to see unless they're unless you're naked, then you're not obligated to remove it, but you can if you want to. The sin is is having is getting the tattoo. Once you have it, you have it already. It's not to say that it's okay to have it. It's not to say that people should just get it and just make one sin and it's okay to continue it. Right. Uh, because anyone that goes into it knowing that it's a sin, like using this argument that I just made, where it's a sin to get it and uh, not a sin to have it, for them it would be both sins. You can't knowingly sin. You know, you made it because you know, partially didn't believe, partially didn't care. 
So it depends what kind of tattoos you have. Um, but that's what else. Nice. Yeah, I mean, listen. It's a all of us have made some type of sin. All of us have been there. Uh, all of us have to do tshuva. There's no such thing. The uh, Torah says to us. The uh, it's actually in the uh, uh, King Solomon says. There's no such thing as a righteous person who doesn't sin. Everyone sins. It doesn't make a difference who it is. It could be Moshe Rabbeinu, it could be me, it could be everybody. Everybody in their own level. But everyone sins. The Hashem didn't create us to not sin. He knows we're going to sin. He created us. He knows exactly what He created. He manufactured us. He knew what part of us was fragile, what part of us is not fragile. Each one of us has different... Uh, uh, character traits, even each one of us has different desires. He knows which part to push and which one not to push. That's not the expectation of, of Hashem. The expectation of Hashem is for you to try your best. Meaning, if you fail, but you don't care, that's a problem. But if you fail, but you're going to try again, and you genuinely tried, you just didn't succeed... You're being rewarded as if you succeeded. If you try really, really hard, okay, you know what? Every day I'm going to wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning to go to shul, finish shul at 7, study Torah for an hour, and get out of the house at uh, 8 o'clock and go to work and so on. And everything goes fine. You go to shul, 6 o'clock in the morning, you pray, you get home, 7 o'clock, you get ready to study, 5 minutes into it, you fall asleep. Because <laughs> it's early and it's tough. It's not the end of the world. Long, Try again tomorrow. As long as you give it your all. Try it again tomorrow. You gave it your all. Hashem knows you're tired. Hashem knows you have a Yitzhah that's going to make you tired. Try again tomorrow. Try again tomorrow. And again and again and again. Eventually you're going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> keep trying. Keep trying. <laughs> you know, you're going to fail sometimes. The Yitzhah is not there to only make you fail or anything. Yetzirah is there to test you. He's there to give you a test. He doesn't want you to fail. But he needs to test you. That's his job. Uh, so, he's going to test you with different things. And if you pass, great. Then you're going to get different tests. You're going to graduate and get better, bigger tests and better tests. But... If you don't pass, you're going to be given the same test over and over again. If your test, if you can't get over, you know, I don't know, you have to date non-Jewish women. That's your test. Then you're going to keep, and you're going to say, listen, I have to stop, I have to stop. But every time you see this ex-girlfriend, you sleep with her. Then Hashem is going to keep sending her to you until you stop. You can't be one of these people who say, oh, okay, if Hashem didn't want me to be with her, then he wouldn't send her. Maybe she's meant to be my girlfriend. No, she's not meant to be a girlfriend. It's meant to be a test. You are meant to be a human being. Control yourself. Not everything is meant to be. There's a lot of things that are meant to be tests. So people can't just like start creating their own signs. Oh, this is a sign, and that's a sign, and that's a sign. No. We learned from Avraham Avinu, no signs. Don't look at signs. Stop looking for signs. There's, cer- there's, 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 there's certain things that happen because Hashem is testing you. There's certain things that happen because Hashem is doing something that you have no idea what it is. You think you've got a flat tire because you're getting punished. Hashem gave you a flat tire because He's saving your life because there's a huge accident three miles ahead. You think Hashem hates you because you lost your job. Hashem is 
taking away all your money because he knows that as soon as you get your money, you're going to go do something awful that you can't undo. Because your new best friend is a coke dealer. <laughs> Hashem is doing you favors nonstop. Instead of complaining, start saying thank you. Because of two flat tires I got. Oh, at least you acknowledged it. At least you acknowledged it. Listen, having having the schut to acknowledge it is is, is amazing. It's a huge schut. Most people don't acknowledge it. I didn't acknowledge it at first. After I found out how it happened and what the, the problem Ken, was, not, most the people don't. Okay. Most people don't don't uh, live to see that day but to know what's what's happening. happening. I was very disappointed. How could Hashem do this to me? Sure. Listen, yeah, yeah, you know how many arguments I had with Hashem. <laughs> He always won. <laughs> you know, I mean, listen, it's a... Uh, one, one, one of the biggest, one of the biggest part of... I can tell you a personal story. And again, don't... Don't... Where you're winning and you don't see it. Don't uh, make me think... Make, make me anything more than I am. Nothing. Just give you an understanding. Biggest part of my chuba that I try to do every single day is say sorry for all the things that I did. Not necessarily just the sins. Sins, okay, yeah, of course, Hashem knows I did this, I did this, He knows. It's not, I don't have to remind him of that. I'm reminding myself of all the doubts that I had in Hashem. Oh, Hashem, you know, I had a doubt with the Panasah, with this, with this, all the doubts, all the times I doubted Hashem, and all the while He was doing me a favor. So you try every day, you try to do everything, you try to pray to Hashem. This is Vidui. And Vidui, and Shmonaisle, you know, it's, instead of complaining, again, like I said, Hashem is doing you favors 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day he's doing you favors. The fact that you're alive already is a favor. He's not obligated to you. He doesn't owe you anything. The fact that we're making, like we're doing him a favor by praying, by learning, by eating kosher, by doing anything is completely ridiculous. It's ridiculous. If we actually start aligning the cards where they're supposed to be, then you'd literally be you know, spending 24 hours a day to eternity saying, I'm sorry. Why? Because you realize that you're bringing nothing to the table, you're getting everything, and you're complaining about it anyway. <laughs> you know, it used to be one of the tzaddikim that every time somebody came to him, ask him for advice, ask him for a loan, ask him for something, at the end of the conversation, you give him a candy. Give him a candy. One day, one of the uh, students asked, for the love, 20 years I see you give people candies. But you never eat them, you just give people candies. Why? You're giving them candy. He goes, one day, I do all these people, these people come to me, they ask me for advice, they ask me for guidance, they ask me for all types of things. And I try to do whatever I can to help them. Some people I help them convert, some people I help them with do tshuva, some people I help them get married, some people I help them not murder their kids because they want to do abortions, some people I help them, uh, you know, uh, uh, get jobs. I help different people with different things, it's my job. One day these people are going to be in a better situation than they were when they came to me. And they're going to remember the favor that I did to them. The problem is human nature is, is that human nature is that you want to return the favor. But they'll realize that they can never return what I gave them. I gave them life. They were donkeys. They became humans. They were going to murder the kid. Now the kid just got married and they love him. They wanted to have an abortion. Now the kid has just learned how to ride a bicycle. And they made a whole movie of it and put it on Facebook. Five years ago, you wanted to commit murder. No, it's only a pill. Right? That's what people say. Mm-hmm. So I gave them something they can't return. What are they going to give me, kid? What are they going to give me? 
What are they going to give me? They can't return the favor. So what happens is when you can't return the favor, you start feeling bad. Start feeling bad about yourself and you actually start resenting the person that did you the favor. And then instead of giving me something good, since whatever good they can offer me can't be what I gave them, they're going to want to return something bad. And instead of giving me a handshake, they're going to want to throw a rock at me. So I figured... If they're going to throw something at me, hopefully they still have that candy in their pocket that I gave them, so it hurts a little less because it's only a candy and it's not a rock. <laughs> you understand? That's the wisdom of the sages. He's thinking already 20 years ahead, he already knows what's going to happen with these people. You understand? That's the Torah, that's the Torah. Endless Torah. People have Torah, no secrets to the world. What else? Well, um... My questions would be about something. Um, I'm in a Jewish organization, and I mean, it's a religious organization. And we try to work with uh, public school kids and making them religious and teaching them and exposing them to Judaism. Mm-hmm. A lot of kids, when they come on our Shabbaton, it's their first Shabbat. Yeah, yeah. first experience of keeping Shabbat. But the advisors and all the staff, they push to the kids. I, the kids hear the word Shomer Nagia before they hear Shomer Shabbat. Right. Um, I've never had a good explanation of Shomer Gia and why you don't touch. Yeah, before getting married. I, I know about like uh, the crimes and uh, listening to some. Well, I mean, listen, you can't really talk to anybody about Shomer Gia before they know what Shomer Shabbat. You're right, 100 percent about that. Because uh, first of all, you have to understand to, to Shomer Gia is in essence controlling. You know, not not having any intimacy, not kissing, not having a, you know before you're married. Um, that's what Shomer Nagiya is, for anyone who doesn't know. And uh, for that, you have to have self-control. Now, if I don't believe in God, what do I need to control myself for? For what? What am I controlled? Why? Everybody else not control themselves. As a matter of fact, people are getting paid millions of dollars to not control themselves. They have movies. They have websites. They're completely not controlling themselves. Why should I control myself? Uh say, no, you have to believe God wants you to control yourself. Oh, okay, why does God care if I control myself? So first you have to understand that God, you know, you, you have to get these people to believe in God. Always has to be step number one, which I think everyone fails at, or at least the majority of the organizations fail at, because most people don't actually believe in the God of Israel. Most people say they believe in God, but it's not the God of Israel. It's a God, like a God that I used to believe in, that was an elective God, like he was there when I need something, like a Santa Claus, like he's supposed to give me stuff, like if I pray, he's going to give me stuff, if I want stuff and I cry, he's going to give me stuff, but he doesn't want to, you know, I, I don't have to do anything for him, like he works for me, that's the God most people believe in, that's not God, that's not the God of Israel, God of Israel runs the world, you're here to serve him, Anything he gives you is extra. So when people start understanding who Hashem really is, that already changes the uh, the picture. Because um, once I know, okay, there's Hashem runs the world and he ex- has certain expectations for me, then immediately I'm going to say, okay, what are these expectations? I'm going to arrive 
at Shabbat well before I'm going to arrive at Shomer Nagiyah. Because once I know God, then I know that on the seventh day, the same God created the seventh day and He said it's special. And even before we got the Torah, He gave us Shabbat. So I'm going to arrive at the whole issue of, of Shabbat well before I'm going to arrive at Shomer Nagiyah. And I'm only going to keep Shabbat if I believe in God. If I don't believe in God, I'm not going to keep Shabbat. Even if I say I believe in God. If I don't believe in the right God, in the only God, in the God of Israel, I'm not going to keep Shabbat. So once I keep Shabbat, then you can talk to me about anything else you want. Why? Because once I believe in Hashem, then I know that obviously Hashem has certain requirements. It's not just Shabbat. You didn't just make the whole world for just one mitzvah. There's other stuff. So I'm going to start learning. Oh, he wants me to also eat kosher, he wants to do this, wants to do this. And little by little you start learning, you get to a point where you start saying, okay, why is it not good for me to have a girlfriend when I'm 15 years old? Because of a few things. Number one, on uh, which one you want to start, the women's side or the men's side? Uh, I'm a man, so... Okay, so we'll start with the men. Okay, so we have a... Two lectures, but you could pretty much just watch one of them. One is a 45-minute lecture, and there's one that's a much more comprehensive lecture. called three, It's three and a half hours. I did it in New York called Wasting Seed. Wasting Seed, which is pretty much a uh, using your seed, your sperm, for anything other than reproduction, which is, in essence, all intimacy before marriage. And even sometimes intimacy after marriage that, you know, you're, you're not looking to bring kids to the world. That is one of the worst possible sins in the Torah. We're not going to go into the details of it. You can watch the lecture uh, to go into the details of it. But it creates a Gehenom both in this world and the next. In so many words, there are only three sins. There's, again, I'm not, again, I don't want to um, go into too many details because there's a lot of to talk about. But nonetheless, there's... A lot of different sins that we could all make. And for every single sin, there's a payment to pay. There are seven parts to Gehenom. Six of them, the first six, each one gets worse than the other, but they end at some point. Meaning you go there for a year, a thousand years, fifty years, whatever it is, it ends at some point. But the seventh level never ends. And only three people, only three types of sinners get in there and never leave. One, violators of Shabbat, Someone that knows Shabbat is holy and still continues to desecrate it, drives on Shabbat, smokes cigarettes on Shabbat, openly violates Shabbat knowingly. Two, desecrates Hashem's name. Someone makes a website against a rabbi. Somebody makes a website against Hashem. Things like that. And three, somebody that wastes seed on purpose. So now you have yourself, this wasting seed is no longer a small sin. It just officially became the biggest disaster in the world. Why they don't talk about it in schools, including yeshivas, I don't know. It's not politically correct, apparently, so people don't talk about it. But if you look on the internet, it's very sad. But in the English language, in Hebrew, there's a lot of lectures about it. In the English language, there's a total, I would say, of about five hours. No, maybe six hours worth of lectures on the internet. Four and a half is me. So... This shows you the disaster that we're in. This is not a compliment to me. This is a disaster that we're in where no one wants to talk about it. Because it's not politically correct, and it's not this, and it's not that, and it's scary. But that's the Torah. That's what it is. We, we, we already found out about wasting seed from Noah, even before we got the Torah. So, on the guy's end, 
whether he's intimate with the girl directly or not, it will lead him to, to wasting seed. Even if, if it's just he's holding hands, even if they think it's cute because they're 14 and they're kissing, and their parents think it's cute that they're going to prom together or something like that, he's going to waste seed, and he's going to get punished for it. And it's, you could even get to the point where, uh, according to the Zohar, someone that uh, starts wasting seed can become addicted to it, and it's the biggest form of addiction in this world, more than heroin. And I know a couple, I have a couple of students that I've been trying to help for some time that have the serious problem of wasting seed and mamash, they're killing themselves. Physically, they're literally dying because of this addiction. There's actual physical evidence. There's a doctor, there's a medical research. I, I brought it up in the same lecture that was done about 190 years ago uh, of how excessive seed wasting actually destroys your body and you end up dying. You know, again... You go to a psychiatrist, pay him 350 bucks an hour, he's going to tell you, no, no, you should, uh, you should do it. It's going to relieve your stress. They recommend you should do it. Research says otherwise. Spiritual-wise, even more so. So, as a guy, serious, serious problem. Uh, another problem is that if the, per, if the guy is intimate with a woman without her without being married then she's always nida she's always impure because she can't go to the mikveh until she's married mm-hmm. so now according to the levels of sin we have in the Torah it's a bigger sin to be with a woman that's nida than to be with your own mother than incest again does it make sense it's not supposed to. This is divine knowledge. This is not like uh, it's not supposed to make sense. Yes, to us being with, uh, I'm giving you an extreme example because that's what wakes people up. It's not to say that it's uh, incest is okay, chas v'shalom. It's just that that's the stuff that gets people to understand the magnitude of the problem. So if you're going to have a girlfriend, it's only a matter of time where that's going to happen. So it's a serious, serious issue. So that's why, according to the Gemara. You have to get married at 18 years old. And at latest, 19 years old. And the reason why is because they say that it's just so much that a person can hold themselves as a guy. And not sinning. So, obviously in today's world, guys get, you know, uh, get married a little later. But you should do whatever you can to get married as early as you can. You know, don't wait. Don't be one of these guys that's 40 years old and not married. Mm-hmm. Try to get married as soon as you can. Because there's just so much that you can do. You're a guy, you have needs, and you know, even if, uh, even if you don't have a girlfriend, it can get to a point where you still see things. You know, we live in Florida. 90% of the people are practically naked. You know, I try to stay at home because it's dangerous to go outside for me, uh, and, you know, without poking my own eyes out. So you have to, uh, you have to uh, take all of that into consideration. And you realize that, you know, sometimes even if you don't have a girlfriend, it could potentially get to a point where you still have, uh, you know, um, wasting seed during your dreams, sleep, and so on, which is still a sin. It's not as big a sin as when you're doing it intentionally, but it's still a sin because it's still technically your fault. It's a result of what you saw. And what you saw is in your control. So, again, teaching a young kid, 16 years old, 15 years old, this stuff, uh, before he knows what Shabbat is, before he even believes in God, it's a mistake. 
a big mistake. As a matter of fact, even teaching what I just taught you guys is usually not uh, advisable for most people that, you know, unless you know they can handle it. You know, but I tell the truth how it is because, again, I don't know if I'm ever going to see anybody again. Whatever I know, I tell people, people ask me questions, I tell them. The only thing I start, I try to hold myself back from is talking about details of Ganom because that's not necessarily too productive. It just scares the hell out of people for no, you know, for... There's a, there's a benefit to it, but not for most people. It could get you to a point, if you really know what happened there, it gets you to a point of shock, and uh, you'd give up. You'd give up. So it's dangerous. You can't teach it to everybody. But nonetheless, everything else, it's in the Torah, we teach it. I don't, I don't care about political correctness. I don't care if you like me. I don't care if you agree with it. I didn't write it. I'm a parrot. I repeat. That's it. So... Uh, you know, so the fact that people that have a lot more Torah knowledge don't teach this is very sad. But is what this Mishnah is saying. You know, hate the Rabbanut, hate the uh, the uh, position of power. Why? Because when you're in a position of power, you have to watch that position. So when you're a head of a yeshiva, you know, listen. If I tell these kids, I'm gonna start a new lecture series to my students. By wasting seed, I know a bunch of their parents are not going to like it. Maybe it's going to scare their kids. Chas v'shalom, their kids are going to do tshuva. You know, the kids are going to complain to me that I'm going to lose my job. I'm making 150000 a year. No, I don't want to lose this job. So, you know what, let's just continue keeping, keeping them focused on basic halachot of... You know, Shabbat and kosher and all the other stuff that they already learned in sixth grade. So, and so that's also one of the downsides of having a position of power is that you have to protect that position. And sometimes to protect that position is against the Torah. So, as far as teaching about, you know, for the guys, wasting seed is critical to teach them about, but only after they believe in God. Once they believe in God, it's going to be easy to make them keep Shabbat because... Hashem says it's the foundation. You can keep the 613 biblical mitzvot. Chazal says, if you found a, there's no way to do it, but if you found a loophole to keep 612, and the 613 is Shabbat, you don't keep it, 612 are worthless. That's how big Shabbat is. Shabbat is against everything else. So as soon as somebody says, okay, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It's not supposed to make sense. If you understood God, you would be Him. Yes, there are certain things that He's merciful enough to let us understand in our human, lowly human mind. But nonetheless, you're not going to understand the whole picture. You understand what's in front of you. You say, okay, I got a flat tire because He saved my life. But you're not going to understand the whole picture where, yes, He saved your life. And then he's also saved 18 other lives. And also because one of those lives is going to bring a baby. And that baby is going to be a big Talmud Chacham. But that Talmud Chacham is going to die early. And he's going to die early to repent for the sins and save 100,000 people. And those 100,000 people, one of them is going to be the Mashiach. You're not going to see the whole picture. You're going to say, okay, save my life. Maybe. Divine picture is endless. We barely understand why we got a flat tire. Even that we complain about. Okay, Hashem, you couldn't bring the Mashiach in a different way other than a flat tire. <laughs> like some people tell no me... Flat no flat tire. And it's a battery. Like somebody, people tell me, and you know, ask me these questions. Listen, 
how come so-and-so did this in the Torah? I think if she would have done this, it would have been better. I'm like, okay, when you go talk to God, tell him, tell him, Hashem, you run the world in a bad way. Sarah shouldn't have died at 127 years old. Should have given her at least another 20 years. What do you want to tell you? Well, I wrote the Torah. Go to complaints to Hashem. Like, say, no, maybe she could have married the king and helped the Jews that way. Like it's a real housewives. Like what? What is, what is this? Legos? <laughs> we're playing. We're playing roles. Like what do you want for my life? You know, I just read the Torah. But that's the thing. People feel that they are smarter than Hashem, and that's the root of our problem. Because if we think we're smarter than Hashem, we don't. Smart. We don't let Him run the world. So nothing makes sense to us. It doesn't make sense to me why I have to keep Shabbat. It doesn't make sense to me why I have to break up with my girlfriend. It doesn't make sense to me why I have to wear certain clothes. It doesn't make sense to me why I have to act a certain way. It doesn't make sense to me why I have to have patience. It doesn't make sense. Nothing makes sense to us until it makes sense, but usually it's too late. So let Hashem run the world. You play your part. You let Hashem run the world. You know, with your permission, of course. You know, let Him run the world. <laughs> and... Uh, and I think it'll be fine. Your life will be much better. Once you let Hashem run the world, your life, your life will be much better. But as long as you're trying to run the world and control your own destiny and, and, and tell Hashem what to do, you're going to suffer 24 hours a day. What else? Oh, so that's the guys. Uh, wasting seed, problem. The girls, on the other hand, also, obviously, then he dies, a sin for her. Two... Her getting uh, pregnant before marriage will be a disaster. Um, and don't tell me, no, no, they're going to use protection. It's a disaster of its own. She's helping somebody waste seed. Uh, three, it also leads to intermarriage as well. Because once you know the, the Jewish boyfriend doesn't work out, you try the, you know, the non-Jewish boyfriend. And by the time you realize you can't be with a non-Jewish boyfriend, he's already your love of your life, and you're together for three years. And what are you going to do then? Convert everybody? You're going to convert the whole world? You know, not everybody's eligible for conversion. So it leads to a lot of this serious, serious problems that are much more difficult to uh, to solve than just having this you here for a couple hours. So it's a if you give your kids the right education, where the kids understand that Hashem runs the world, we have to follow what He says, there are rules, and it's for our best interest to focus on developing a relationship with ourself and with Hashem versus with other opposite sex until, you know, we're adults. Um, we're only going to get in trouble. But honestly, all the advice in the world that you can give them will not help if their parents... Let them do whatever they want. Like your organization can be phenomenal, but if their parents let them watch, uh, you know, immodest movies at home, and they allow them to come home at two o'clock in the morning, and you know, even though they're only sixteen years old, uh, and they let them do whatever they want, doesn't matter what you tell them. Have a really, really would, be, would have to be a really unique personality to get what you're trying to tell them, and that's very rare. Well, you know, most people in general are sheep. They follow. They're heard. You know, they follow certain things. They, they, they're part of a crowd. Very few stand out. Very few are actual leaders. And they say, you tell them, listen. In a place that there's no 
leader. There's no, uh, you know, uh, leader that tr- tried to be a leader. There's very few leaders. Everybody wants to be a leader, but there's very few actual leaders. So, I think that uh, you have to try to, in addition to influencing the kids, you got to try to undo some of the stuff that's at home. You know, it's uh, because you know it's, it's it's very difficult. It's very difficult if you know if if a lot of kids are confused about Judaism because they go to yeshiva, they put the kippah, put the tzitzit, they come home, Abba and Ima don't keep anything, so they're religious in school, they're not religious at home, so it turns the religion to a joke. It's like it's optional. Once Judaism becomes optional, no one's going to choose it. No one's going to choose. Why would you choose obligate? Why would you choose obligations? Why would you choose limitations? Because again, if you don't, if it's not divine, then it's just restrictions. It's not real. You know. So, I think that's the most important part is to teach people that there's God. And after you teach them that there's God, obviously you let them know that God runs the world. You need to. He has rules. And then once you get to that point, you uh, will have an easier time convincing them to occupy their time with something else other than the opposite sex. I don't think you're ever going to convince a 16-year-old to stop liking girls until he's 20. Yeah. I don't think you can convince a 16-year-old girl to stop liking boys until she's 20. It's not going to happen. Nobody's Moses in this generation. But you convince them to use their time differently. Get into something else. Get in, you know, more Torah learning, more connection to Hashem. Just occupy their time with something more significant than uh, intimacy, than the opposite sex. And I think that that's uh, your only chance. You know, but just tell them, listen, stop liking boys for the next few years. Why? Yeah. Why? Just put it on the stop. It's not a movie. You can't just put it on the stop and then press play in a few years. You know, so especially at that age, hormones are going crazy, and again, unfortunately, the the environment that they're in—it's all they see. It's all they see. You know, the the uh, the Brad Pitts and the uh, Angelina Jolie's are role models of the world, even though they their own life is a disaster. People think they're role models. So you have to look at things that way, and then and. and Get people to believe in Hashem. Once you get people to believe in Hashem, the real Hashem, then everything start can start falling into place. But until you get to a point where you get people to believe in Hashem, nobody's going to do anything. And part of believing in Hashem is fear. It's necessary. You have to scare them. Beginning of wisdom is fear of Hashem. That's what Shlomo Melech says. Hmm. Saying Hashem is lovey-dovey, loves everyone, everyone's a tzaddik, everyone is great, everyone's wonderful... Doesn't matter what you do, he still loves you, all that stuff. It's all nice, it's wonderful, it sounds like a nice teddy bear story. It's not true. It's not true. There are certain people that Hashem hates. He writes it in his Torah. He calls them his enemies. Yes, he wants them to do tshuva, but until they do tshuva, they're considered his enemies. You want to see it? It's at the end of Parashat Vayetchanan, last three verses. He calls the details of who his enemies are. Also people in Parashat Bechukotai, Kitavo. Several different places. You want to also look at details of what happens to them? You go to Gemara, Masechet Rosh Hashanah, page 17. Or you go to Masechet Sanhedrin, page 90 to 98. 
all the details of what it says, what happens to all these people that Hashem doesn't like too much. It's not fun. So, again, this is not, this is not my idea, this is not my version of the Torah, and it's also not stringencies. This is minimum level Judaism. Basic level. The fact that all of it seems like stringencies is because of how far we are from the truth. It's not because this is higher. It's because we're so far from the truth, we've eaten so much poison and political correctness in our life, that this seems like uh, Mount Sinai might as well be this. But it's not that far from you. It's not that difficult. And again, like I said, you're not expected to know everything day one. You're expected to try. Try your best, just like you go first day at the job. You're not expected to be CEO, even though it says it on your business card. You're expected to be you. And you is going to call, hey, I'm looking for a secretary. Hey, I'm looking for a printer. Hey, I'm looking for pens. You is going to try his best to build an office. Get some pens, get some paper, get a printer, get a computer, get some electricity, maybe some, uh, I don't know, different office supplies, a couple of employees, a couple of vendors, maybe some goods. You, simple. You don't have to, you know, you're not, you know, you're not, you're not building Pepsi and Coca-Cola overnight. You have to start with the first thing, first ingredient. Same thing, same thing, same thing with, with, with Judaism. You're not starting with 620 mitzvot. 613 biblical and 7 rabbinical. You start with one. Start with Shabbat. Start with kosher. Start with praying to Hashem. Start with laying tefillin. And grow, grow, but don't wait, don't look like, okay, this year I'm only going to do Shabbat, nothing else. Next year I'm going to do Tefillin. Okay, by the time you get to, to Mitzvah number 20, you're 97 years old. Who knows if you're going to live that way, that long. No, obviously you have to grow much more fa- faster than that, but nonetheless, take one, and then another, and then another, and then another, and another, and little by little. Most important thing, as I say to everybody that's starting out, learn Torah every single day. More important than anything else. 15 minutes a day, an hour a day, two hours, whatever you can. But there must be time every single day that you learn Torah. Why? Because that's what's going to keep you in. If you just become one of these robots that does mitzvot, but doesn't learn Torah, it's only a matter of time before you stop everything. Because the learning Torah not only teaches you why you're doing it, but it gives you the good feeling that you're going to get out of it. Whereas just doing mitzvot like a robot, eventually it's going to lose its meaning. Manja is like, what do I need to keep Shabbat for? I'd rather go to the beach. What do I need kosher for? McDonald's is so delicious. What do I need to keep my Brit? She's beautiful. I'll keep my Brit tomorrow after her. That's, a, that's, that's the Yetzirah talking. What do you think? I don't have a Yetzirah. I know what the Yetzirah is. I know him really well. I dealt with it. We're BFFs for 30 something years. I know. Yetzirah, the evil inclination, the, the one that's telling you to do otherwise. So, start with one thing, then another thing, then another thing, then another thing. But most, also, most importantly, keep, make a commitment. I'm going to study a certain amount of time every day. Try more, but then no, no day passes without studying a minimum amount. So, if let's say, for example, I started with 15 minutes a day. I said, doesn't matter what happens, every day I'm going to study 15 minutes a day. I'm going to watch a lecture, I'm going to read a book, 
15 minutes a day. Some days I studied 18 hours. I was into it. I started, I didn't stop. Other days I did 15 minutes. But I knew that no day would pass without that 15 minutes. But Hashem, today it's more than 15 minutes. But the point I'm trying to make to you is that you make a commitment. That no day pass. It doesn't matter if you have jobs, you have work, if it's holiday, if it's... Uh, it doesn't make a difference. Mashiach, come, say, hold on a second. Mashiach, I have 15 minutes today. I'm serious. 15 minutes. I got Mashiach, comes 15 minutes. I got 15 minutes, then I'll see you. You have your 15 minutes. You have your hour. Whatever your time is. Your parents come over. You haven't seen them in six years. Okay, one second. Let me do my 15 minutes, then I'll see you guys. Have to have a certain amount of time every day. You do that, you're buying yourself the next world. You're going to make your life much easier. But if your Torah is on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and like sometimes Thursdays, you're going to have a very, very hard time to stick into it. If you have a very hard time sticking to it, you have a much harder time influencing other people to stick to it. And if your surroundings are a bunch of people that are falling off, eventually you're going to join them, Chas Shalom. In Judaism, you're either growing or you're shrinking. There's no staying, there's no status quo. So... so you have to continue growing. But Hashem, I think the power of Torah, you guys keep coming to the Shurim, keep listening to the Shurim, keep learning on your own, you have questions, you have all this stuff, all this stuff is going to help you. I went through everything that you're going through, going to go through, uh, and Bezat Hashem, you'll have much more success than I ever did. But again, it's not going to be easy, and no one should ever tell you it's going to be easy. But it's the most rewarding thing in the world. Why? And I tell you, my personal example is that I know that it doesn't matter how much material I had in my life, Right now, I live in Gan Eden. I don't like anything, even though I live off of a tzedakah. I used to make bad month, $200,000 a month. Still had more stress than you could possibly imagine. Today, I have no idea where the money's going to come from, but I know everything I want, I have. How? I don't know. It's Hashem's business. He runs the world. So, health-wise, 50 doctors, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of medical bills, couldn't figure out what's wrong. You let Hashem runs the world, oh Hashem, everything's okay. No doctors, no medicine, no nothing. This is all real life examples. So, again, it's not easy. It's not supposed to be. But you do it, you do it, you do it, keep going, keep going, and you'll see that there's a lot of reward at the end. And Hashem gives you small little miracles here and there along the way to keep you going. Give them a reason. Yeah. Let you guys get some get some sleep. Baruch Adonai Amen ve'amen. The funny thing is.